Hey everyone, my name is Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another Make Ours Marvel special called Not Comics. This is our fifth Not Comics special. Five months we've been doing these things, Mike. Yeah. And this is, uh, there's been no new Marvel movie, so we can't, you know, talk what? about- What? I know, Captain Marvel is so far away. Well, they just released uh, Infinity War today, I think, so we could have just talked about that again, but we already did, so. Infinity War. <laughs> yeah, we already did. Um, since our episode for Amazing Spider-Man 1 has just recently dropped, we thought it might be a good time for us to go and take a look back at the first major motion picture featuring Spider-Man called Spider-Man. Or do we have to call it the adjectiveless Spider-Man? I don't Tom know. McFarlane Spider-Man. presents Spider-Man. <laughs> Todd McFarlane presents, yeah. So, um, as usual, we do have a third voice on the line with us here today. So, um, coming to us from the Gotham Chronicle, which is a show about the Gotham TV show over at the Batman Universe website, but also the co-host of a uh, really interesting socio-political show called Questions We Don't Have Answers, uh, which if you haven't heard that show donovan's gonna tell you about it here in a second and, and you will want to hear it uh but donovan grant thank you very much for coming on the show don hello thank you very much for uh inviting me it's actually been a very long time since i talked about spider-man so uh this this should be right? fun um yeah so don and i with another friend josh used to do a spider-man show way back in the day called amazing spider-man classics and um that that that's been years ago now and don i I think other than like the yearly april fools specials i don't know if we've done any other shows since then nah gosh um the only thing i can think of is is like when i i I did a guest spot on your uh golden age man show but even that was like around the classics era so it's yeah it's been a very long time yeah um but yeah talk about um Talk about your two shows. You can talk about Gotham, but then I definitely want the listeners to know about uh, the Q&A show. Yeah, me too. They don't need to know about the Gotham show. Um, I mean, like, like uh, <laughs> the BatmanUniverse.net, which is a site I've been working on or working for for uh, several years, actually. Um, it's a very good site. Uh, Stella's Batgirl the Oracle podcast is hosted there. And uh, my, her, herself, myself, Joshua Leffin Bertoni, uh, tend to do write up a lot of editorials and, you know, thought pieces and um, uh, hot takes. The Gotham Chronicle is a show that Josh started up. It was initially between uh, himself, Stella, and myself. And it's currently done by uh, himself, myself, and my seething ex-girlfriend, Jan. Uh, we It's basically a show where we talk about every new episode of Gotham that airs. Uh, we try to get it out the same week that the new episode airs. And it is kind of fun because the show is taking on an almost classic ex-life in that like we kind of... We, the show is so weird and wacky and like ir- almost irreverent that like we kind of just like you know th- this past fourth season we've done song parodies for almost every episode and um <laughs> yeah we, we have this weird voice for ben mckenzie's gordon voice because he puts on this weird B- bale-esque voice himself and we have fun with it i don't love the show myself not not the not the like the television show but the podcast is a lot of fun and, and like the three of us enjoy it um greatly so you can check it out there we are all caught up to the current season and we're set to uh get back on it when the final season airs um but uh, the show that i the, the most recent show that i began uh after the uh, temporary end of the next mention was is called uh questions colon we don't have answers and i did that show with uh a man i very much respect and admire uh harrison chute who is a young um writer and 
he and I have teamed up and kind of just like wanted to have a show that kind of talked about pertinent issues, whether they be kind of relevant in the news or otherwise. Um, we try to ha- come up with really the idea is that we talk we talk about things that people never can agree about, but never really kind of sit down and, and really kind of hash out. Like early on, we had an episode about the morality of sexual fantasies. You know, we talk about religion. Does it d- divide or unite us? Um, where does the concept of um, mandatory patriotism come from? Um, are there, you know, what are the limits of storytelling? Um, uh, how, how can creators avoid stereotyping? You know, a lot of stuff. And I would say within the last year, we've, we've gotten probably even more serious in terms of like discussing trans issues and uh, constantly bitching about the White House as every good human supposed to do. Um, and and we come from geek backgrounds ourselves. I'm, I'm a comic guy and he's a major sci- science fiction fan. So he'll bring in references to um, Korean uh, movie directors or science fiction uh, writers or directors. Um, so... We're both nerds, and we kind of come from that with with a nerd's um, curiosity of the world. Um, we've had uh, guests every now and then, like Josh has been on, Stella's been on, but we're most the majority of the sixty um, odd episodes are the two of us. So your miles may vary on how fast you get sick of our voices, but I do think we have um, pretty interesting discussions. Like, um, um, how soon are we going to be having sexy cyborgs? And uh, um, you know, what about Bill Clinton? Or, you know, how long should we hang on to Problematic Faves? There's a number of episodes that you can choose from and kind of see if uh, this show is your jam or not. But uh, it's definitely a show that I'm very proud of. And I am uh, I am tickled pink, as it were, to get a chance to advertise it elsewhere. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that if you are out there and you are you are thoughtful about the world, uh, if you're thoughtful about, you know, this, this niche geek culture that we're in and also, the, you know, larger culture at large... Um, it definitely is a show that's worth your time. Um, I don't know. I think I have a definitive answer to every one of those examples you just offered, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> Keep them to yourself. <laughs> oh. Um, one side note that uh, listeners just have to indulge me for a second because, Don, I should have told you this before we started, is that um, the way we do our editing is this is kind of live radio. I will remove any dead silence that happens, but basically anything we say on the show is going to go out unless there's some like big ma- massive interruption. So just uh, just to let you know, I don't quite go through this with a fine tooth comb like I did on on classics. No problem. Um, so yeah. Um, all right. So we are here to talk about Spider Man. The what was it? Two thousand two film. Yes. Yep. That I think you one could arguably say that. In conjunction with the X Men, the first X Men film launched modern superhero cinema. Yeah, as we as we understand uh, it, yes. Yeah, uh, I think that you know before <laughs> as before we that. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that the, the the Batman movies were an effort to sort of make that happen, but I think that the direction that they eventually went sort of sent superhero cinema downhill for a while what do you mean but spider-man and x-men like <laughs> revived it yeah totally totally um so don what are uh actually before we get into the film itself because i was going to ask you this what is what drew you to spider-man what's like what's some of your um early experiences becoming a spider-man fan well um i can definitely remember getting into spider-man at a young age unlike batman who was kind of always around spider-man i remember advertisements for the 1994 Spider-Man cartoon. And uh, that summer before that cartoon came out, there was a big push to have that cartoon's kind of toy adaptations and KB toys. 
And I remember, I was five at the time, and I remember thinking, huh, this new character Spider-Man, let me try out this new character Spider-Man that I'm the only one who's finding for the first time. Uh, and I, I liked the toys, and I watched the 90s show, and that was, that was very much kind of like how both the 90s Superman show and Lois and Clark were my initial education of Superman. The 90s Spider-Man show was sort of my initial education of Spider-Man, and same thing with the X-Men. Um, but like that really kind of launched my interest, and that was during the Clone Saga, which I was I, I kind of got into, and I really I liked, and to this day I like. Will I defend it? Maybe not, but I, I do like it. And um, yeah, like it kind of you know one thing led to another, and by the time of the JMS era, uh, which is I think it was around two, yeah two thousand two thousand and one, um, I was you know hardcore into it. And many years later, I've read probably the first three hundred consecutive issues, and you know major uh, spats of ones uh, of runs here or there afterwards. Um, he's, he's, Spider-Man is probably my, my second biggest collected character. Um, he's definitely... Well, I say, when Batman's not my favorite character, Spider-Man's my favorite character, is, is what I tend to say. I mean, I think that he is... I think that... I mean, I, I love all, I love a lot of the Marvel heroes, um, especially like Captain America and Daredevil, and, and most recently Black Panther, but I think Spider-Man is by far and away, even still, the most compelling Marvel hero. Um, he just has a real... I mean, you know, everyone talks about his humanity, how, the fact that he's a normal guy, all kind of stuff. But the way that's been sort of like you know interpreted by authors whose perspectives come in uh, are presented in different dimensions, I think um, there's just a lot of replay value with Spider-Man. And um, I was I was hyped when um, I was 13 years old and the movie was coming out, which I always kind of felt was inevitability. I remember seeing a fake ad in, in a Wizard about the Spider-Man movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio, but uh, that never happened. <laughs> um, but no, oh, yeah, wow, yeah, uh, I remember that. Oh yeah, totally. So I, I, I kind of always thought it was only a matter of time, but um, I wasn't like shocked at the at my age uh, when it came out. But um, yes, I uh, yeah, I, I'm, and it's funny because like I was telling my brother like right before we started recording that um, watching these films reminds me why I'm a Spider-Man fan because uh, the character's been through so much in the last ten years that you can kind of get some distance from that. But uh, yeah, he he he's he's going to be he's always like you know to quote Bibbo, he's always been one of my favorites, I suppose. Hey, Superman quote. I love it. <laughs> or Superman reference, rather. Um, yeah, well, that gets us into, like, where we were when this movie came out. Um, so you saw, you said you were 12? I was I was 13. I remember it very well. 13? Okay. I forgot the number you said. Okay. And um, Mike, what do you remember about seeing this movie? Um, so I was probably mid-20s. If I could do math, I could tell you exactly how old I was. But let's say uh, 20-ish, 7-ish or something like that. Um, I remember seeing the first like footage of it at WonderCon, which for those who don't know is our was our Bay Area, you know, big yearly convention that was held in Oakland. Um, then it moved to San Francisco and now it's in Anaheim and they shaft us. But anyway, uh, back then WonderCon was the big thing. Not better though. Yeah, now we have Comic Con San Francisco or something. So it's kind of the same idea. But anyway, uh, WonderCon Oakland for those who know it was a big deal. And I went with my best good friend who happens to be like his favorite character is Spider-Man. So, and I like Spider-Man too, as I've talked about on the show, I'm sure. Um, and they showed us the footage of like when Spidey stops like a couple thugs, thugs at night or something like that. Like he swings in and jumps on one of them and flips around and stuff like that. Um, and it was the awesomest thing I'd ever seen. I remember just being so excited about that, that they had quote unquote got Spider-Man right. At least how he fights. I thought at the time, I remember me and my buddy were like punching each other cause we were excited and apparently 
you know, cavemen or something like that. Just <laughs> punching, punching each other's arms with excitement as we were watching this. Like, just filled with glee, excited. Because prior to that, you know, like, I'm not going to diss on the Batman movies, but that is kind of a different section of, of superhero comic movies, right? Like... I don't know. That got us through sometimes. I like those movies, but it's not quite the same as what we got now. And X-Men, even though it came out first, I think, in 2000, you know, I like that movie too, but it's a lot of, like, guys standing around with, like, wind machines blowing or, you know, lasers shooting out of their eyes or something, but no, like, movement or that kind of excitement. So to see that, like, getting Spider-Man right for the first time on screen, that was really exciting. And then, of course, I enjoyed the entire movie. Um, I bought this fancy like box set that had like kevin smith interviewing stan lee and stuff and it came with a reprint of the comic and everything it was like the movie to own and watch like a billion times for a while that was it was a great movie and i still liked it watching it for this episode so i was not reading comics when this came out Mm. um reading spider-man comics was one of those things like i remembered doing and wanted to do again someday maybe but like the digital age had not really hit as far as comics went yet or at least i was ignorant of it i should say it that way um if if it was out there i didn't know about it but certainly a lot of the legal services that exist now were not in place then um and so this movie came out now i remember that like the first trailer i saw for this film was something about um some guys running out of a roof onto a helicopter and um, they're 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 getting away, and I don't remember if we actually see Spider-Man in that trailer, or if we just like you know see webs and stuff going after them. But they end up getting caught in a giant spider's web that was suspended between the twin towers. Oh yeah, I remember that. Okay, I don't. Remember and that. yeah, so of course that was one of the earliest marketing moves for the film because the film didn't come out until two thousand two summertime so this is the beginning of their marketing is you know late summer 2001 and uh of course september 11th comes around and that trailer is immediately pulled from all sources um you can find it around now if you if you search hard hard enough everything everything exists on the internet somewhere um but yeah but then going to see the film uh i remember really enjoying it it was spider-man it was he was my guy um, a lot of people who know me know, think of me as a Superman guy now. I am very much a Superman guy. Spider-Man was my number one guy for a very, very long time. And he's still my number two comic book superhero. Um, I just There's so much about the character that I love, that I relate to. And getting to see him on film was really, really cool. Uh, I remember when we got the DVD and watched it at home, the DVD had like covers of every issue of Amazing Spider-Man or, or the first hundred issues of Amazing Spider-Man or something like that. You could like scroll through them. Um, I remember at first reading that as having the actual issues and getting really excited and then finding out it was just a cover gallery and being less excited. <laughs> Anyways. <clears throat> um, so yeah, super big film. X-Men was around. Spider-Man was around. Ultimate Spider-Man, the comic book was around. Yes. Um, and I think I actually read some of those online because I think Marvel had a situation where you could read them online. Um, and I was doing that at work between phone calls at help desk. But that was the only comic reading I was doing at the time. Anyways, so should we get into the film? Yeah. I believe we have no choice. <laughs> this, nah, this is I think story. that was good. Yeah. So you can find us at Nara. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I have a list of talking points that we could go through, but um, I'll let you all 
let y'all pick first. Donovan, is there anything that, like, as you're watching it this time, you said it made you remember what it is you like about Spider-Man. Do you want to expound upon that, or do you want? Is there something else that you remember thinking while you're watching it this time around that maybe was new or, or something you hadn't thought about in a while? What's well, so funny because I was really, uh, you know, it's been a busy couple of weeks, and I was like, you know, I could easily. I could probably easily do this show without having to rewatching it, but the fact is, I really haven't rewatched it in a few years. Um, and there are so Marvel, uh, uh, not only superhero films, Marvel films are so part of the regulatory mechanism of fandoms' lives these days that it. I I, re- I really appreciated this viewing because at this point in time, like, I, I can't remember the last time I watched it, but like even when I last watched it, we really had kind of had this sort of like. Avengers, uh, Avengers, Avengers Renaissance, the Marvel Cinematic Universe Renaissance. Even though they were still going on when I was last watched it, that we do now. I mean, we just had Infinity War. That's gonna be on on DVD soon. Um, so there was a lot of like kind of sort of like 360 perspective going on when I was watching this film, and just I think that like what I really, I guess I was burying the lead, but yeah, I I, I, I think this film holds <laughs> up. And in fact, uh, three Spider-Man later, three Spider-Man actors later, I was like, you know what? Um, all things told, with with different actors or different takes on the character, um, this still is the best. It really is. There was a, definitely a moment in 2012 where I was like, I really like Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man films the best, but I think this is back on top because I feel that this is a terrific approximation of the Spider-Man ethos. Uh, mo- virtually everything is there. Anything that I would have preferred isn't like a knock against the technical writing in the film. The themes are, are airtight. You know, there's not a single scene I don't enjoy watching. Um, the humor is great when placed, but it's, the film doesn't rely on that. But it, it's perfect Spider-Man humor. Um, it's natural. The drama is uh, a million percent effective. Um, you know, there are certainly scenes that are over top. There are certainly scenes that are cheesy, and there are certainly scenes that are kind of dated because of the FX or whatever. But you, I think unless you're like kind of a passerby towards either Spider-Man comic films... I don't know how much you're going to care about that. Like, I think if you don't... I have an investment in the character, so I give a lot of slack towards some cheesiness. Like, it's like the, the 90s Batman movies. You know, I, I don't. I know they're really cheesy, but I, I don't tend to care. So, like, with Spider-Man, you know, um, there's stuff like, you know, some of the dialogue in the Green Goblin or whatever, but, like, it, it, it's not beyond the pale of the characters. So I think that, like, you know, especially with, like, the style of Sam Raimi and, like, the way certain shots are directed, um, I really... Uh, appreciate i think i think like, like i think michael was saying a few minutes ago in some ways this film was ahead of its time and it's harder to appreciate that when we have you know a lot of really entertaining uh, superhero films but in terms of you know not only being an entertaining film but getting the character right um this is a really this is, this is one of the best ones that there's ever been it really is this is this is in this belongs in the top 10 in my opinion comic book superhero films yes we've had logan yes we've had the dark knight yes we've had the avengers but there's something to this film that really stands the test of time that I think you can't pass off just because it came out when it did. You know, the early 2000s had a very recognizable style to it. But I think that this one kind of stands... Just like, you know, the, the 78 Superman film has, has a very recognizable style to it because it was a 70s film. But even still, I think that, like, uh, uh, with perspectives of other films and uh, keeping in mind, especially the Tom Holland Spider-Man series, uh, this one really stood, stood on its own in a really impressive way uh, this most recent time I viewed it. Yeah. What do you think, as, Mike? As, uh, one, I'm glad to hear that you love it so much because I feel like, and maybe this is just the internet in general, but I feel like a lot of people dog on this now that we have other options. 
um, which I don't care for. Kind of like how, like, you know, Heath Ledger was the greatest Joker of all time. But I remember when people said otherwise, you know. I remember uh-huh. when people said that about Jack Nicholson, too. So I don't like when people dog, you know, I, I, I don't like when people forget what things were like, I guess. And, and, you know, like you were saying, this, you know, now we have so many movies to pick from. But at the time, this was like the movie. Um, and oh, I yeah. still think it holds up. You know, regardless, I'm not going to say it was great only because there was nothing else. I still think it's good. And like you also said, I'm just going to repeat what you said. But um, I like that it's a it's a pure origin story. Um, you know, like or not like the Garfield. And I don't want to get into comparing that all night. But like I feel like they kind of tried to twist it up and shake things up and make it different. And then, of course, Holland is completely dependent on the Avengers universe. You know, you can't just watch it on its own without knowing who Tony Stark is and Civil Uh War was and all that stuff, right? This, it's like, oh, you don't know who Spider-Man is? Let's pop in this one. And it gives you all the elements you need. And as much as people, like, sometimes complain, like, oh, do we really need to know how Superman became Superman again? I think sometimes you do. And in this case, you know, there was no... Spider-Man movie before this one. There was a TV show that was in the 70s that, you know, whatever. And there were some cartoons and stuff. But, like, this was the big thing that, you know, a lot of people needed to see. So, in that sense, I think it really is a strong film and it holds up on its own if you want to just have, like, a good, pure, like, Spider-Man origin story. Yeah. I mean, I love the Marvel Cinematic Universe and so much of what it's doing. Um, But there is definitely something to be said for a movie that stands on its own depends on no other continuity except for what it's establishing right there and is distilling all the key elements of a character's uh, mythos, their concepts, their supporting cast um, into a single story Uh, that so much of the Marvel cinematic universe, while it does that, it also is kind of putting its own spin on things kind of like the Andrew Garfield films did kind of like the ultimate comics did kind of like, any new relaunch of a character in comics does. But like, if you wanted a movie that was going to go back to the Ditko Ramita Spider-Man comics and grab the core of that concept and make a movie out of it. This is that movie. This is the, this is that movie. And in addition, I mean, and I'll confess, I probably haven't read it or if I did, it was a long time ago, but like consider considered probably one of the greatest storylines, the green goblin and, you know, Harry's dad is his greatest enemy, and then Harry's dad learnt, finds out his secret identity and uses it against him and all that. They got – I don't know if they, like, followed that story exactly like how it happened in the comics, but I'm sure that they got the emotional beats. Um, well, there's an elemental thing that, that carries over really well. I mean, there's, there's – like, after um, uh, he saves the kids and Mary Jane and, and Goblin kind of, like, ropes him around. I mean, if you kind of squint, it's kind of oh, like yeah, a, yeah. ASM uh, 39. Uh, where yeah, that, for that, sure. That, 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 I mean, I never thought about that until now. It's like, oh, that's, that's kind of like that. It's kind of reminiscent of that. Um, he even get, he even loses his mask right after that scene too. So yeah, there's there's, there's, like there's, the there's it's it's not you know you know it's definitely it, this movie's take on certain things, but it's take on certain things in terms of like you know sequence of events. Not, but like the the theme is still there. Like you know the essence, the mm-hmm. kind of core, the characterizations are all uh, translated. Right. And you know, there's so much nowadays whenever a superhero is presented and their characters are presented, they they revamp the visuals. And that's so common. And that plays here, too. And I know <laughs> that it's so common because every single time it happens, 
there's resounding choruses of yays and nays on both sides mm-hmm. on the internet, which is one of the most frustrating things about fandom. But, um, well, not one of the most frustrating, just one of the frustrating things. This, like, Ben and May look exactly like Ben and May. Rosemary Harris looks like, like the most classic Mary, Aunt May ever. And, right? And she's great in this, too. They both are, I think. Spider-Man looks like he walked off the pages. Oh, yeah. Mary Jane looks like Mary Jane. The only thing that looks really strange is the Green Goblin. Um, <sighs> but I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. I honestly do not know if there is a way to get the Green Goblin from the comics on screen in a way that is not ridiculous. I actually don't have never minded how he looks in this film. I can appreciate I, it could be like, oh, Power Rangers or whatever. And sure, like I'm not going to say he looks good and you should like him. But it's never bothered me, and I think it's because like the the imagery, the the iconography of the mask, and Defoe's voice works so well that like I'm not really picking up everything else which might look wacky, because he, he, I mean that that's an absolute change from like the comics. Whereas Spider-Man, aside from the way the raised webbing and like the kind of the back spider, is pretty much exactly the same. Um, but yeah, I, I mean like it's because uh, they they kind of they, they they kind of were a little uh, more creative with the, the villain's looks later on but um uh yeah it, it's they're not doing the, the leather jackets which i decry often like it's and they tried changing his costume alex ross came up with an entirely new costume for this movie but they just stuck to the generally to the the ditko original i i mostly side in frustration not because it bothers me but because it's one of those things that like the whole fan community um belly aches about so much that it's just like oh god I don't want to hear about his stupid Power Ranger look anymore. You know, <laughs> like it's never really bugged me that much. I will say that you know, I'm a, I really like Willem Dafoe, not just in this movie, but in general as an actor. He's just one of those guys like I could watch in anything, kinda. Sure. Um, but like he has a goblin face, naturally, <laughs> and a Osborne like, voice. <laughs> just spray paint it, you know. Like that was kind of sad, but like. Don said, I mean, you're totally right. Like, I don't know. I never watched the movie going, boy, I wish I could see what he's thinking right now on his face because he totally emotes it through his voice and the occasional, you know, you occasionally get to see his eyes when he lifts the lenses. Um, and I like some of his, like, body movements, too, were kind of comical, like, on purpose, I imagine. Like, when when he beats Spider-Man on the roof and then he's just kind of, like, pops his head. Him on, yeah, pops his head and leans on his elbow and stuff. Like, that was all really cool, like, uh you know, pan, or um, you know, mime training stuff, or something like. If you don't have your facial expression, how else do you express what's going on? And I think he get, I think he get, did a good job of doing that with his body and his voice, which is kind of co- a comic book thing in itself. Because I mean, Ditko's Spider Man, his face doesn't emote. Yeah, everything about Ditko's Spider Man, if you want to communicate emotion, has to be done through body language. Um, <laughs> and so we have a similar situation going on here with the green goblin costume. Now I watched this with my kids and uh, my daughter hated the fact that you could see his mouth through the mouth. (laughs) Mm. Mm. Impressive. (laughs) Yeah. So he should have worn like a body sock on his head or something. See, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I respect that. And I I kind of sort of agree because it is kind of distracting, but at the same time, like I said earlier, like I don't know if there's any way to really reproduce a comics goblin face with a mouth and everything else. Well, maybe because and, like the goblin face in the comics, it's, it's an, it's an entirely new face. It's just, you know, the cartoon nature of comic book artwork. 
it's it's a face. It's not a mask. I mean, it is a mask, but like it operates like an actual face. But maybe we consider like how they did the Red Skull in in the first Avenger Captain America film, where like that was a mask, but that was an emot- an emoting face. I mean, maybe maybe mm-hmm. now they could do it, but back then, I mean, they tried. I mean, I, I I've seen the different designs. Well, they had makeup technology because you know TNG and Michael Westmore and all that stuff existed by. Is this Westmore? I don't know. I may have just made that up. But the makeup guy on Star Trek and stuff, um, um, you know, and that's 80s and 90s. But then you have to – then you get belly acres going, well, then what does he do? Go to the bathroom and apply makeup? You know, like – so at least the helmet is like easy. You put it on, you take it off, and you can also put it on the back of a chair and have it talk to you when you're having your MPD episodes. And um, I think it worked visually. I think it was cool. Kind of scary. I think, I think Defoe's voice – and mannerisms really sold it where the mm-hmm. a lesser actor it, it would have been much worse oh, absolutely i mean my favorite part is like that scene where um they wonder if he's home or not and they go upstairs and he's hiding on the ceiling oh yeah and like That's he drops the, the the drip of blood yeah but my favorite willem dafoe scene is that because like he turns around he looks down he looks up the camera pans up and then it comes back to his face all close up and he's got this perfect goblin face and he just does a little like animal growl i mean oh my gosh that was so great and then right after that aunt may slaps his hand and he starts carving the turkey like he wants to cut her open all that stuff is so good he is this he is like an absolute like sleaze in that entire sequence with him like perving over mary jane and then, then then like he licks his fingers then like dices the knife like that that's that's goblin's not saying anything but that's like goblin completely taking over the personality Totally, it's awesome. It's just so good. Yeah. It's very good. It's it's it, it makes him creepy, mm-hmm. uh, both in a um, like older guy kind of way, but also just in a person kind of way. He's just like uh, makes you shiver. Um, yes. You mentioned the MPD a second ago, which I was thinking about that as I was watching the film. I was comparing it to the the comics because in the comics, at least in like the Silver and Bronze Age, um, Norman Osborn he gets this like split in his mind. Mm-hmm. Where he doesn't remember being the goblin, yeah. Except for whenever something happens to make him remember, and then he goes on a tirade as the goblin till the end of the fight, and bam, he doesn't remember anymore. Mm-hmm. So you do have that sort of split going on in his mind, which would be kind of hard to tell a story because that sort of split depends upon an episodic nature to your storytelling. Whereas this is trying to do it all in one go, so turning him into a split personality. Where like he doesn't know that he's the goblin, but the goblin's doing all this stuff, and then eventually they kind of come together. I thought it was an interesting take. Yeah, and because Spider Man and him have like yeah, it's pretty. Like I mean, constantly it's, bounce off each other. I mean, it, it, it works. It works as like a, personality. It almost sounds kind of the same thing, other than the part yeah. where he doesn't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't really have that in this. I don't think that I can remember. But uh, I like that they, they like he talks to himself. That's that was just some good stuff right there. Oh, that was a great uh, idea. Yeah, at first he doesn't know that he's being the goblin. And yeah, he starts having conversations true. with the goblin, but they do it is kind of subtle. Yeah. Um and you don't you don't realize that he doesn't know what he's doing as the goblin at first because all you see is him doing goblin stuff. Right. Well I mean, yeah, if you if you if you never read the comic books, you um, don't realize it. Can we change characters or any, any other thoughts on the Green Goblin? Um I could go on we about can. him, honestly. Uh, I'm cool with that. Um how did y'all feel about Mary Jane in this movie? So if I had one it's not a criticism, but going into it, I remember when this first came out, this movie, I was not super experienced with Mary Jane as a character from high school. You know, like to me, she was, I knew her as like that scantily clad 
supermodel that hangs out and always asks Peter if he wants a muffin or something, you know, like <laughs> when was that she like was that? Her. She's all grown up and his wife and stuff. So when, when this movie came out, I was kind of like, why didn't they just make this like Gwen Stacy or something? You know, that was like the thing that bugged me a little. And I also felt like her hair dye job was super Actually, this one is like, wig. or straight up wig, whatever it was. Yeah. It this is, looked, she, she dyes her hair later on. This one is a wig. It looks fake and like they're just trying to make a comic book character come to life. That like that kind of takes you out a little bit from the real, you know, quote unquote realism. Like that puts you back more towards like late 80s Batman. Some of the sets and like her look in particular make me think like they still haven't quite got to where we are now. Like they're still holding back a little bit on trying to make some things look comic booky on the big screen. Where now they sort of don't bother with that anymore, I don't think. Um and I don't know. I don't want to criticize her as an actress because I've seen her in other things and she's been great. I mean, she was the scariest tiny vampire I've ever seen. But uh, uh-huh. um, like, I thought she was really good at playing the role. I liked the conversations they'd have like when she kind of knew that he was into her and she'd push his buttons a little bit. I liked those moments or where they're <laughs> friends. I didn't so much like the parts where she would like profess her love and stuff. Like something just didn't, never quite worked with me on that. Like her face got awkward or something weird. So, like, if I had any criticism of any of the cast members, unfortunately, I think it would be her. She doesn't quite. I remember back then definitely thinking she wasn't Mary Jane to me because I had a little, little ugh, a limited experience of what Mary Jane was. And now I just don't think she's as strong as actor as some of the other ones. What do you think, Don? She's definitely um, one of the more common criticisms of like the, the, just the film series, even more so beyond the film. Uh, and I think... For, historically, I've always kind of wanted just a more traditional Mary Jane, like like just you know, kind of like you know, like like a kind of more um, vivacious, sort of like you know, attention grabbing mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. And I think for the story that they're telling, she works great because you you see a lot of I mean, th- and this is interesting to her character in the comics, like the whole she puts on a facade for a public face, but when she you know she's a a more um, layered character beneath the surface there's a lot of that in this film um but and i think the most the most you get from it or like you know before she gets attacked by like the would-be rapist like she says to peter I, i'll see you around tiger like that that's that's mary jane and i think that um uh-huh. the films kind of go into their own way uh uh as, as the films go on in terms of how they kind of characterize her as as their own character so she's not the most like mary jane could have been but at the same time like i think in this film it works out fine like, um, as I think that, like, in this, in this film, um, you're kind of rooting for her and Peter to get together. And I think that, like, uh, they made her just a little bit more, they made her more sensitive in this movie. So, when I watch it, I mean, I really didn't mind it at all. Um, I'm still kind of, I, I still want that comic book Mary Jane, uh, in the films. And I've kind of been a lot more upset because, like, having started to follow it, having started caring about Zendaya since she was cast as MJ, like, Zendaya in real life could be Mary Jane. So I don't know why they don't do that, but like uh, in this film, uh, I, I, you know, there's still you know, well, they could have you know done this or that, but like for the sake of the story, I see what what led them to this sort of decisions, and, and I don't mind it um, as much as, as if I ever did. Plus, I think her hair looks the best in this film compared to the other two. It- yeah, I remember um, being really excited about Kirsten Dunst in the role because I had seen her in um, Interview with the Vampire, like Mike mentioned. Um, I had seen her in Crazy Beautiful. Um, and you know, she and I are of a similar age. And so there's, you know, the, the celebrity crush aspect was also there just like getting to see her, you know, be, um, 
you know, on film being a character that, you know, is my favorite fictional character's wife. You know, that's fantastic. Um, and I felt that her portrayal, my initial reactions to her portrayal were that it was just way too quiet and way too subdued. And it was really confusing because I knew that she could do otherwise, that she had done otherwise, that her characters in other films, Crazy Beautiful Comes to Mind, were more out there. And as I was watching it this time, I was thinking, you know, like Don was saying, she does seem to have different ways of portraying the character in the course of the film. When she's around her friends, she's more extroverted, more loud, for lack of a better word. Um, and when she's with Peter, she's quiet. And it's almost like that's the sincere her that's coming out. Uh-huh. Um, I'm still not sure how effective it is to portray it that way. But, you know, she'll go from quietly talking to Peter in the backyard to, like, screaming about Flash's car as she runs up to her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. I do see what you're saying, Mike, about whenever she whenever she gets, like, really emotional, her face and just her portrayal of those emotions just feel a little bit – I'm thinking of the very last scene. The very last scene just feels a little bit off in her acting. I don't know. Yeah, but um, something something about it. The last scene and the scene in the hospital where he's talking about, you know, she wants to know what Spider Man thinks of her or something like that. I think some of that is a dialogue. Yeah. Well, but I think Toby is doing fine. It's just like something in her, like she's not. At least in that movie, she's not good at having lovesick eyes or something. I don't know how to explain it. I did like the couple of beats whenever she's like, really. Peter, you don't you don't have a reason. Yes, for- that's that was great. great. Yeah, or she's playing him. She, she's she's like you know, uh, you know, are you interested? I'm not interested. Are you or something, something like that? It's like the kind of thing you want a girl to say to you. You know, yeah. you want to have that kind of exchange with a girl. And, she, and when she, she does you know, do that, you don't know what to do. She's. Right. I mean, it's a cool beat. Like she's the girl next door, but she's also super popular. So therefore, out of his league. But at the same time, she literally is next door. So he kind of knows her dirt too. Like he knows about the screaming parents or uncles or whatever she's got and you know so like in in a way they're like more connected than say the stupid boyfriend that she's with where she has to put on the facade of being like a popular girl that's kind of the confusion in the comics because uh uh like there is the whole like oh mary jane she was always a girl who snored but she wasn't like she was a chick that peter ignored and then when he saw her she was this like va va voom zaf tick like you know showgirl like she was never really like the girl next door like the ultimate gwen state or the ultimate mary jane was um, mm-hmm. So th- it's kind of like you know a combination of a number of ideas. I think that it's 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 the it's best achieved in this. Like when Peter is all happy that his powers, he's he's on to school, and you see her exit her house, yelled at her father. It's like bam, hardcore reality hits. Like that really plays, and I think mm-hmm. that like that's the most girl next door gets it because you know the girl next door isn't like you know necessarily for you. She literally is the girl next door that you can fall in love with, but her life isn't all sunshine and rainbows. Makes me wonder how if at all, um, how much conversation there was um, between the higher-ups of this movie and the higher-ups at Marvel Comics, because Ultimate Spider-Man was getting its start in late 2000. That's a good question. Which, just the movie time, the movie pipeline, this movie would have been either in development or at the writing stages around that time. So the characterization of Mary Jane in this film, which does line up very much with the characterization of, of Ultimate Mary Jane and the how she's, you know the next door neighbor who they're friends and she's sympathetic, but she's more popular and everything else is there. There there are a lot of similarities there in a way that had never really been done in the mythos before that. I do. I think that like this film 
because Ultimate Spider-Man would have been, would, you know, would have been out. I think this film takes some, definitely takes some stuff from Ultimate Spider-Man, but I think that Mary Jane is way more like Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy. I think that this one's a little bit more uh, originally written, and Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy is, is much more of a one-to-one comparison, in my opinion. You think Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy is much more like Ultimate Mary Jane? Totally. Okay. In my opinion. Well, I yeah. guess you got to figure if, you know, it's not like a comic book. You're not going to have 500 issues for him to date 15 different women. So they're probably thinking like, you know, ultimately we know he marries Mary Jane in the comics. So let's just put her yeah. in that role right out of the gate because we're only going to get maybe three or four movies out of this. Yeah. And at the time that was a given. There was no other course for Spider-Man. He had married Mary Jane and that's the way things were. Mm-hmm. Well, also like, you know... Um, it's, again, it's, it's an approximation. Like the Green Goblin dies in this, but because he had a story that ended in the comics, he kind of want to tell his whole story. Um, he, like, like, like Betty Brant's in this, but she's the secretary. She's, she's not the first girlfriend. So it's kind of like if you literally, like almost if you had a dream about Spider-Man and all those elements are there, they can't all be their entire history. They're, they're going to be like, you know, set chess pieces. Yeah. And just to tie her back to the Green Goblin, um, they they seem like they wanted to have a little bit of the Gwen Stacy thing going on. I thought about take that her tonight. Out to a bridge. Yeah. Well, they put it in the trailer because I remember gasping like, "Oh, they're going to kill her in this movie." You know. <laughs> yeah, right. They, well, they, show I, I, her, they show her falling in the trailer. That that scene where she's like looking at the camera eye. with her arms outstretched or whatever. Well, even um, even like I mean, and this would happen later. This 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 was not around the time. But when um, and this uh, this probably just goes to like, the creep factor of Norman Osborn. But when he's leering at her. At the Thanksgiving scene, I thought of like I, I thought of Gwen Stacy in *Sense Past*. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you want to you know when it, when it was a story or not that spoke to Norman's character in a way which we kind of get later worked on in comic books. And I thought it obviously there's no there's no earthly way they could have you know known about that in the future. But that to me was very kind of like you know there was a lot of connective tissue there because you know that's his, that's his his son. There's, you know there's an incest vibe in there, and you know that's his son's girlfriend at the time and. And just how, and how he speaks about women in this film, like it, it was, it was all uh, synergetic. Yeah, yeah. Norman Osborn is is definitely not happy towards women in this movie. <laughs> he wasn't a he wasn't a nice guy before the accident. So yeah, I mean, he wasn't great. wasn't a great father. Not so great with women. But, but they, they had Mendel Strom in this movie. Like it, it was so good. <laughs> uh, yeah. They 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 did they did so much of like the original Green Goblin concept in this film that I was completely unaware of last time I watched it or just didn't realize the extent of the connections. Um, but throwing her off now, I did look up which bridge that was because there's always the debate of is it the George Washington Bridge, is it the Brooklyn Bridge? Oh, God. And this bridge is neither. This bridge is the Queensboro Bridge um, in New York. So so there's that for whatever it's because he's from Queens. And also, you He's know, like, like, like uh, it's Mary Jane, so like it shouldn't be either bridge because if she doesn't die. Oh, this is true. Yeah, but, but that was a yeah. good scene too, though. Is Queensboro Bridge the one that goes from Queens to to Manhattan? I don't know. You're the wrong California. guy. I don't, I don't know New York either, but it would it would be make the most sense that whichever bridge connects Queens to Manhattan would be the one that he would grab Gwen Stacy and take her to. Um, slash Mary Jane. Well, I mean, he, at the time, were they not? Were they in Queens or Manhattan? Yeah, because because at the time he was he was sharing an apartment with Harry, and and and, and oh, Gwen, in the city. Yeah. Gwen had a, had key to his apartment. He wasn't he wasn't with Aunt May. Um, Mary, so, Jane. Like, and, Mary Jane had a key to his apartment. And and um and and when, when Green Goblin grabbed Gwen, 
like in the comics. Yeah, he appeared oh, in the, in the says, comics. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. She had, she had a key to his apartment, and like, yeah, they were in the city. Uh, yeah, it was Peter and Harry's apartment, and Gwen was there. Uh, Green Goblin knew Peter was Spider Man, so he, he went there seeking her and found her, seeking him and found her. So, yeah, it, w- it would have been like in Manhattan. Um, this movie, of course, has one of the most famous superhero kisses in yeah. it with the upside down rain kiss. And um, as I was watching this time, I realized that there are three Spider-Man masks in that scene. Like they, they, they assemble the shot based on three different costumes. Um, there's the costume that he always wears where his mask is of a piece with the rest of the top of the part of the outfit. That's right. Um, that way, that way the lines re- line up. Right, right. There's never a discrepancy there. And then when she reaches up to take off his mask, she actually reaches under the collar to grab the hem of the mask. So that's a separate costume where theoretically the mask is tucked into his collar. Mm-hmm. And then um, they do some clever camera work so that she never actually pulls the mask over his chin, but instead he's wearing like this half mask job that looks like she's tucked the fabric up underneath, you know, the, 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 nose area of the mask but there's actually only about an inch of fabric there that she's tucked under i don't think i realized that it's 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 so funny like like logistics of making a single mask like this is the same time where like you know they couldn't make batman's head turn uh the the limits of science (laughs) or his eyes black yeah 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 they still can't figure that one out but um (laughs) because we also watched batman returns this weekend and like whenever he takes off his mask he has no eye black yeah, they do the shot where he has no eye black, and they give him a different mask that he can tear apart. Yeah, and, and like it's 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 such a it's not like a blink and you miss it. It's such an obvious change. What was Burton yeah, thinking? Yeah. <laughs> or I should say, uh, yeah, Daniel well, Waters. you know, we our brains were numb by the time that happened anyway because of penguin missiles. But only only a only a group full of guys can talk about the ro- most romantic superhero kiss of all time and talk about the technical issues of the costume. I, I I know. I sure hope someone got fired for that blunder. <laughs> I, 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 I had a girlfriend who uh, she said she was texting me a, a, several years ago, and she was like, "I'm watching Spider-Man One." It's like, "Oh, what's your favorite scene?" And she was like, "The kiss," and like all explanation points. And it, yeah, it really uh, it's a cool plays. kiss. It's a good. I'll kiss. go ahead and be in touch with my emotions here and say it still holds up. It's still a good kiss. I like that. You know, obviously it's upside down, so that makes it unique and interesting. Spider-Man. But I, I think even more than that, there's a constant subtlety there of like this trust going on because like she starts to pull it down and then he says, "Wait," but he doesn't stop her. So right there, she could have just yanked. You know, so she respects his his like desire to not be revealed. And at the same time, he doesn't like. He puts his trust in her to not pull it off his face, so that all adds to the, you know, the relationship too. I think so. It's, it's a good little bit. That being said, beat. is she cheating on Harry by doing this? <laughs> nah, because he's dumb anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we don't care. Um, yeah, we don't care. We know they're not meant see, to I be. Thought, I thought Harry was neat. One of the one of the like best portrayed characters because he mm-hmm. he is supposed to be cool. But he's also not that good at being a person. Yeah. yeah. He's kind of got this spoiled I, brat little thing going on, sort of. And I feel like that's an accurate description of the Harry in the comics as well. Mm-hmm. Well, even in the beginning, like 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 he is implicitly on the higher totem pole than Peter, but he's still kinda like kinda teased by Flash and stuff. So like um which is different than the comic books, but at the same time, I mean, yeah, Harry was and we talked about this in classics, Harry was kind of a sniveling twerp. He really was when he first appeared in uh 
and there's a lot going on, you know, in terms of, like, you know, inadequacy issues with his father and trying to appease his father and trying to be like his father, that they absolutely translate to the comics here. Even if, like, several issues don't explicitly say it as much as the film does, the film boils it down to what it is. And, um, yeah, I agree with you. Like, just, like that dynamic was pitch perfect. Yeah, he's not a jock like Flash. He's not a nerd like Peter. He's a rich guy, so by that alone, he's probably cool enough for high school kids. But in addition to that, he's kind of got this laid back, you know. And of course, he's good looking because he's what's his face. But uh, yeah, he's <laughs> kind of like James he's Franco. like in a different yeah, James Franco, which was really for me like the first time I ever heard of James Franco. I don't know. If, oh no, I knew I, he did that James Dean thing too. I think. But anyway, this movie like kind of probably made him famous, right? I, I, I like this version of Harry better than I like Ultimate Harry Osborn, who kind of felt like, I mean, he was in and out of the book, and, you know, then he became Goblin. Right. I, I mean, not that I actively disliked it, but as I'm thinking about it now, it's like, this is a much better realized take on that character than that. That one felt really not, not much thought through, as, as much as I love Ultimate Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah, the Harry Osborn seems to be the sort of thing that the uh, Bendis was making up the next thing to do with Harry as he came along. And so it just ended up feeling not super organic or cohesive. Like um, on the one hand, it's, I think it's really cool that Harry likes Peter and is friends with Peter and even like tries to help him out by introducing him to his dad and getting him a science, you know, whatever and all that. Um, but I do like that line. Doesn't he, something like uh Harry likes, doesn't live in this place. I like to call reality or something like that. <laughs> that well, cause he's a rich kid. Yeah. Cause he's a rich kid. And so he does have issues that, Maybe, you know, kind of suck, obviously. But uh, well, I thought well, he, he was a cool guy. That, like, it'd be cool to be friends with him. He has issues that are described in the comics and portrayed in the comics and flashbacks. But we rarely got to see Harry and Norman as a father-son at home interaction in the Spider-Man comics. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this movie took what we knew about that relationship and showed us that relationship and- in ways that... I don't think we ever really got a chance to see. And it made Norman even more villainous for it, which was good. Well, there was that flashback in ASM 40 where, like, Norman's ranting to Peter, who's tied up as Spider-Man, about, like, how he raised Harry. And, like, you see Peter, you see Norman misguidedly trying to raise Harry, but, like, he never really knows how to connect to him. Um, but here, I think that, like, uh, uh, I like it how... Norman seems to be a genuinely like he's trying to be a good guy all around, but like he just can't be a good guy. Like I actually really like in this, this viewing, he honestly likes Peter Parker. Like that's not a put on. Yeah, he, yeah. he genuinely yeah, likes yeah. him, and that feels right because because I mean around this time in the comics, maybe it was influenced by the movie, but like there was a whole thing with that Paul Jenkins was doing where Norman was trying to groom Peter and kind of you know have him as a wing, which was new. But that feels much more like a Norman Osborn thing. And here, there's a, there's a real sense of like a salt of the earth, honest to goodness. Like I like this kid. Um, I'm not, but you know, once I find out that he's Spider Man, well, I got to deal with this now, <laughs> which is cool. It it also creates tension between him and Harry on both or both Peter and Harry and Norman and Harry. That that Harry's dad, who he's always trying to get like you know um, praise from, is now liking his friend better. They also did that to the spectacular Spider Man cartoon. Um, if, if I recall correctly, I was, was going to ask you how the spectacular Spider-Man portrayal per- compares to this. Like, um, um, which is much more, uh, well, in places it was like, this, places like the comics, but like when Norman Osborn was against, was against Peter, he, you know, had to put his hand on his shoulder and, you know, you're really cool. And you would see Harry kind of like, you know, wince in, uh, in the foreground. Um, and in the series finale, 
um, there's a similar scene uh, in the funeral scene, and and there's there's a very much a scene, a scene like you know like like uh, I hate Spider-Man and I'll avenge my father, you know, but you're so good to me, Peter. That's just that's just you know that's that Spider-Man kind of you know narrative of like just twisting the knife. Which <laughs> mm-hmm. is a lot of fun. And he steals his girlfriend too, just to really. I know. I love how that show ends. <laughs> Which it didn't end, but that was a great ending. So, um, I had a few thoughts written down about Ben and May in this. We already mentioned them briefly. Um, May is visually spot on, and her portrayal is very uh, Aunt May from the comics. She's not annoying. I feel like, Christ. yeah, I feel like the Ben in this is very much the kind of Ben we would have gotten if we had gotten to see him more on the page in the comics. <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, it's an eleven-page story that his origin and and Ben dies after you know, only seeing him for like six panels. So there's not a whole lot of source material there, but I feel like it's there. Um, a couple things I wrote down is that he specifically identifies himself in this film as being sixty-eight years old. Okay, which immediately made me think of the oft complaint of how if if Aunt May and Uncle Ben are so dang old. Then how old were Peter's parents? How can they be his aunt? Why aren't they his grandparents? And so I did the math and thought about it. Okay. Peter is a senior in high school. He's roughly 18 years old when Ben is 68. That means Peter was born when Ben was 50. Now, Ben is Richard's brother. We presume that he's his oldest older brother. And so depending upon families, and we know that there are a lot of families back, you know, 60, 70, 80 years ago that had a lot of kids over a wide span of years. The idea of one man being 50 whenever his younger brother is like 35 having a kid, that doesn't seem very far-fetched to me at all. And so I feel like it actually works. The idea that Ben's and May's age does reconcile with Peter's parents. Yeah, my dad has a long spat of... I don't know uh, if y'all have ever thought about that. My dad has a long spat of uh, uh, siblings, and he generally has like, like brothers and sisters that are 20 years older than him. So it's, it's, it's totally realistic in my yeah. eyes. I don't I don't think it... it didn't, I didn't even think about it watching it you know, this week, and I didn't think about it watching it then, because I think, especially then, the idea of them being younger wasn't a thing. They're always just old. And now, of course, yeah. now, of course, it's in fashion... Maybe from Smallville, I don't know, but like to make like parents not ancient just because they were in comic books. It's really made um, the whole um, Marissa Tomei casting much more cynical in my eyes in this viewing. <laughs> I gotta say, I really don't like that. <laughs> um, and I think that like uh, uh, in comparison, it's not even so much the casting as it is kind of just making sexy aunt jokes that it's just like, you know, you know I, I prefer this take. Yeah, I think, you know, you have to remember there's been 18 years. So however old, you know, people were whenever Peter was born, 18 years later, your parents are old. Um, and so their older brother and sister are also going to be, you know, significantly older. So I think I think it does work. Yeah, but Marissa Tomei um, and whoever the lady was who played this, they're the same age. You're, what? <laughs> I don't know how old she is. I just made that up. Some people just age. 50, but like, <laughs> Some people just age better than others. <laughs> This is true. This is madness. I mean, how, old is, um, how old is she? she oh, Rosemary is, Harris uh, was, was, was older than 50 when she, in 2002. She's 53. 53 right now. Marissa Tomei is? Yeah. So how old was uh, this lady in this at, at, in 2002? Um, this is a rabbit well, hole we don't need to fall down necessarily. But 
No, I mean, I mean the actress. <laughs> There's nothing better than men talking about women's appearances and ages. So yeah, let's continue. Yeah, right, right, because they're going to really appreciate that. Rosemary Harris. Rosemary so Harris. One other thing about. Go ahead. Um, Keep going. I'm just ben doing and May is that Ben's last conversation with Peter is the same as Jonathan's last conversation with Clark. It's the exact same conversation. Come out from Man of Steel. Oh yeah, with the whole you know like, like uh, I'm not your father. Then stop trying to be. Or, yeah, and, yeah. Owning your powers, learning how to deal with like not of course. Ben doesn't know that Peter has powers, but owning yourself, owning your choices, being the person you're going to be, growing up to be the person you're going to be, and then the rejoinder of you're not my dad, stop trying to be. All of those elements were the truck scene between Clark and Jonathan. Rosemary Harris was 75 when this movie was made, and <laughs> Marissa Tomei is 53 when Homecoming was made. So never mind. I just made that up. But it's anyway. Not <laughs> <laughs> well, she does. She does age accurate to Ditko's Aunt May. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, Marissa Tomei's age is requires much less mental gymnastics to reconcile with, yes. with Peter's age. But, um, you know. but anyway, that's a great scene. I didn't mean to stamp to to stomp on what you were saying. I like that scene a lot. Um, I didn't realize it. Yeah, you're right. It's the same as kind of the Man of Steel, but um, it's really like that whole bit is heartbreaking to me. It's sad that like that was the last words he had to Uncle Ben. Um, and I think it's sad that Uncle Ben was like killed in front of the library that supposedly he was supposed to be at, but he lied about. It's like, oh, that just makes it. This just makes it all the worse. Yeah, I, I, I remember it, trying to pretend that I had a problem that he wasn't killed in his house like the comics, but like it doesn't really matter. Um, no, it's fine because the ASM films got so indulgent with the parents stuff. I like because Peter's parents before the ASM films were really even with all the stories the comics were really kind of an afterthought. Like you just mentioned that, like his, you know, he lives his own because his parents are dead. So, like, I like to mention, I know I'm not your father. That's the only time you you reference that, and I like that. So you you know some of Peter's backstory, but you know just enough to like his dad's not there. And I liked, I I, I always I always liked that line just because it referenced a history of Peter Parker that exists, but no one needs to go further. And you and you know it's just and, a nice a mean thing for a teenager to say when you want to when and he knows it's just he's just saying it to uh, to upset him. Because he wants to win the argument. And for 99% of Spider-Man comics, Peter's parents are a non-issue. There's the annual in the late 60s, and there's the parents are back in the (laughs) mid-90s. And the rest of the time, we never talk about them. Yeah, because who cares? I mean, it's weird that they were S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. Um, And honestly, like that's not really important. You you could retcon that and no one would care. Uh, But like, um, it's always a thing that that I've always kind of liked how, you know... Like, like, like it was in the, in the 90s cartoon um the only time you reference it was like uh when dormammu got into peter's head and like he had a nightmare and he, and he saw his parents like, like that's the only time you re- like it's cool to kind of have that sort of ethereal thing like um like later on in contagion as i know you're reading uh robin john uh tim drake has a fever dream and like he sees his mom and like you know she's so rarely referenced mm-hmm. uh throughout his history that like it's cool referencing it every now and then but not, you know, you know, don't get too much into it because it's actually more powerful when you kind of play, uh, play, play distant with the parents. Well, if ninety nine percent of the time their his parents don't matter, then why did they not have to be there in the first place? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know why. It feels. It feels I don't like know 50 anything about the, the. Were they trying to get away from Batman? Maybe because it's kind of similar origins in that sense. Like 
you know, your relatives gunned down. I don't think I don't and think so Stanley you, thought about that, but like, I, I, it feels like sixty storytelling where it's like, you know, oh, so and so lives with his aunt and uncle who are old, or so and so lives is like, you know, is great. I wanna I wanna say that was a Kirby story, the aunt and uncle part, and the rest of his story was about a kid who finds a magical thing that turns him into a magical guy. So they got rid of all that and did a Spider Man thing instead, but the uncle and aunt part sticked, stuck. Mm-hmm. I can right. speak English, well, so, but I don't know why. So, I don't know what the significance of that was. On paper, there's so much of the early base concept of Peter Parker that is very, very, very similar to Clark Kent. And Clark Kent Superboy's parents were portrayed as being elderly for so much of his run. Um, there's not a whole lot of difference between Ben and May and um, Mom, Jonathan Mom. and Martha. Right. Yeah. So they're not identical by any means, but they're not completely dissimilar either. So perhaps making them an aunt and uncle just it's it's just a little bit of difference. Um, yeah. And also, they're an aunt and uncles valuing Peter. I think means more mm-hmm. than parents valuing Peter. That's true. And it also makes him different. More, you know, he already is different because he's a big nerd. But now he also doesn't have parents. Well, Nobody really it, yeah, complains it's, it's about that. Yeah, his 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 life is harder. It's, it's like you know, he was his aunt and uncle who are old. He was the old people who kind of you know make him make him dress like a dork and stuff. But see, his parents are dead. It's, it's like the perfect like you know, outsider thing. Like he has a, he has a lot of hangups. Um, I think Uncle Ben and Aunt May were styling. Were styling. So really, if he's dressing like a dork, it's his own decision. <laughs> yeah, May's a real pussy willow. Yeah. So um, there's that the bit like not to get away from the origin the bit the big decision you know the part that changes his life forever in this movie um, I think they I don't know if they added or not element or not because you you Spider-Man classic guys are going to tell me that in five seconds but to me it was an added element that not only was he just like I don't have to stop this guy from running away with the money because I'm a big superstar and whatever no one's done anything for me why should I do anything for anybody else but he also got in a fight with the guy whose money was being stolen. So he did it out of spite. There was like this evil motivation behind it, not just a lazy motivation. It was like, <laughs> why Why is that my problem? You know, and if Uncle Ben hadn't got shot, that's where the villainy comes from. So I like that. I like that they kind of even made it like just amped it up just a little bit and made it even darker. I know that Bertone doesn't like that, and they did it again in the, the first ASM film. Yeah, because the other argument is like, now they're giving him a good reason to be a jerk, whereas in the comics he was just a jerk to be a jerk. Yeah, he was now a hilarious like, jerk. Well, I, now it's like, I understand. That guy was just a jerk to him and wouldn't pay him, so I wouldn't save the whatever, too. And that's one way to look at it. But I like the way that like he replies, I don't see how that's my problem. And then like Danny Elfman's music turns all evil and ominous, and like <laughs> the guy just walks away. And it's like, ooh, yeah, Spider-Man's on the path to darkness here, except for the part for where his uncle's going to die. <laughs> yeah, except for the part where his uncle's going to die and immediately change everything. But well, because that's that's yeah, the thing. Because like it's, it's, many, it's many days later when it, when Uncle Ben dies in the comics. It's not the same night. I think it's in keeping with the emotion of the story. Mm-hmm. It's just you know it takes things one step further. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter's decision not to stop the guy in uh, in the comic is completely driven by selfishness. Completely driven by. Um, conceit Mm -hmm. and being full of himself Mm -hmm. uh it's everything about that is similar to the emotion that we get in this it's just that we don't we don't have peter in a position where he's full of himself in this comic i'm sorry in this movie except for the fact that he has been given a reason to spite the guy Mm -hmm. that he's you know that he's basically allowing to be robbed um so i think the emotion is there 
the story is the same emotionally, even if it's not the same plot. Lines. Well, it doesn't change yeah. because uh, in the comics, he, if I recall correctly, he was he had a successful television appearance. Yeah. And the guy was like, you know, we'll call you soon. So he's he's on top of the world, and that's uh-huh. what makes him have an ego. And here, he's on top of the world for like five seconds, and he smashed cut to the, the guy Rob, like shortchanging him. So it's like if if the guy paid him the full money, they could have done the whole egotistical thing. But I think because the way that they 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 wrote Peter in this film. He's so sympathetic. Maybe the, the audience wouldn't buy him having a swelled head. And, like, it is actually more sympathetic if you are with him saying, no, no, you deserve that money. Yeah, screw this guy. Like, that, that, I think that's actually rather clever because it would yeah. have been much to a- to ask Tobey Maguire to play this sort of swelled... You know, Spider-Man 3 is no problem. But, like, in the first movie, I think <laughs> he's so sympathetic that, like, you couldn't... I don't know if you could pull that off, having him be yeah. the swelled head egotist that he was well. in the 60s. Yeah, because in in the, in the original eleven page story, there's a there's a theme through the multiple scenes of Aunt May and Uncle Ben. They're the only ones who've been good to him. Everyone in his life is crap to him. They can all go walk off a plank. I'm always going to be there for Ben and May, and the rest of the world can go hang for all I care. And so, like, the, the, there's there's some scripting that feeds into the moment where he's like, you know what? The rest of the world can go hang. This guy's running by. It's not my problem. And that moment is fed by the short story format in a way that this film isn't. So to get the same moment, you have to do it a different way. Well, either that they can't do a thought balloon like that for one thing in a movie. Um, mm-hmm. So you're not going to get that decision making process. And then also the other option would have been to have a bunch of scenes of him being successful as a wrestler and getting more and more like swell headed or something to demonstrate that he's turning from lovable nerd to, you know, selfish bastard. But instead, yeah, this is just a nice, <laughs> nice shorthand way of like, of showing that his decision-making is different now. And this is one of the best scenes in the entire film. I, I just love just how like, like the low, the lighting you is. You just like Randy, the macho man savage. Well, that, I mean, I mean, I mean like that's the whole thing, but like the whole scene with like, like the burg- the burglar, um, uh, well, I guess the carjacker in this, in this series, but like the burglar, like, essentially like, the, the low lighting and, like, the echo of the guy screaming, stop that guy! And, like, you know, uh, uh, just just thanks. how serious the scene is. It's great. Yeah, it is good. But Macho well, Man Savage we is awesome. With Peter, yeah, as Bowen saw. Oh, before yeah. we get uh, too far into Peter, I have one more thought on um, May, and that is that my one scene of this film that I can't stand, I find it cringy as anything, is an Aunt May scene. Okay. And that is where the Green Goblin attacks her. <laughs> no, and you mean the statue of the screams, Green Goblin attacks her? So when it screams at her to repeat the Lord's Prayer. Oh. And, you know, she's sitting there praying, and he he blows up the wall, and she's like, deliver us. He's like, <laughs> say it, finish it, from evil. <laughs> See, now that is a Batman carryover, I think, that kind of scene. Because there's some elements I to this. I hate it. There's some element. I don't mean like literally ripping off Batman. I mean just the vibe. There's some elements to this movie that still aren't quite like modern. Like there's definitely set pieces, and you can feel when they're set pieces, which is very Batman. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll disagree. Definitely, with you. like there's definitely lighting choices or fake skies. Like in the alleyway scene, as great as I like the kiss and the fight and all that, but that's just a total on set thing, I think. Um, and then yeah, something like this. Where it's just like it's a little cheese ball, the whole from evil and everything. <laughs> but I could see like that happening in, you know, Batman number three or four. 
See, I don't agree with you because I think that um, there was definitely an era of like post eighty nine Batman films, like with the Crow and Dick Tracy, and um, <laughs> well, Dick Tracy was just Batman, but yeah. Well, what's with that? I think this is Sam Raimi. It's just Sam Raimi's yeah, that too. sensibilities. That's true because Evil Dead and like they do a lot of fast cutting and all that stuff too. But. And he did Dark Man, which is which is which uh-huh. was a lot like Batman as well. But like it's, it's also like you know his sort of like just sense of theatrics. And how about Bruce Campbell naming Spider Man? Huh? Huh? That's great. <laughs> I, lo- I-, I love you know got my name wrong. I don't care. Get out of there. That made me laugh out loud. <laughs> I'm the, what did he What did he want to be called? The, the man human spider. spider. The, the human, human spider. spider. Yeah, yeah. Ah, that's that's lousy. The human spider. <laughs> I love that bit though. Like he draws on paper this amazing Spider-Man outfit, and then when he's revealed, he did not pull that off. <laughs> that was awesome. Well, uh, this, this I, I actually laughed a lot this viewing, and like when he's walking down, and like Bone Saw's like babes are like screaming in his face, and then the guy like so gratuitous, like oh god, oh god, my leg. Oh yeah, like that made me laugh. It's like so over the top. Like, and that that that, that was one of his few. Um, banter things if there's any criticism i have of toby Maguire's spider-man is like he doesn't banter a lot i think that he actually and he actually did it more than i realized in this film than than i i imagined yeah by the by the by the third one he kind of just like kind of gets away from that but here there was a lot of like really smarmy spider-man lines like i'm thinking i'm thinking actually like uh you know like like he when he saves jameson he's like, he's like you know uh settle down kiddo mom and dad are talking like like that's a spider-man line yeah for sure. And it, that's a cute outfit. Did your mom pick it out for you? That made me laugh. Um, <laughs> a little homophobic, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> back in 2002. Well, I mean, also, like, you know, the whole, you know, I'm going. I'll be back here when you get when you get back. Not coming back, Chief. Like, he had some yeah. really good Spider-Man lines in this. And I, I think, I don't know if they just got away from or, like, I tend to forget. But, like, he did sound like Spider-Man. And where it's, I think that Holland and, and Garfield were much more consistent with that. But, but Toby mm-hmm. could pull it off. Yeah. He was also he was also a lot more quippy in the video games where well, she voiced. It's not Toby's fault. It's the it's the scriptwriter. But I'm just, yeah, like it's, it's, I it's, think it's yeah. a Daniel Kep or Don, the the the, the writer's name is Kep. Uh, who like Spider Man Two. Here's your change. That makes me laugh a lot. Well, my favorite line but from like, that is is like you know you're getting on my nerves. I have a knack for that. Like, like that's a great line. Yeah, but there's just so few instances like you can remember them all. So that's that's telling that maybe they don't do it that often. But maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. I, th- I always have the sense that like they didn't want it to be too goofy. And if Spider-Man in his full costume was saying quips, they thought it would become like a Schumacher film. But it's like, but that's Spider-Man. He is the guy who quips. Yeah. Like like they, that that line from Civil War where he's like, that thing doesn't follow the, the laws of physics at all. I mean, like that's that's the effing character. Like get the program. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I I mean. Like you were saying earlier, Don, we have later portrayals that that have their strengths and and make us think of other things. But then you go back to this, and this just seems like Tobey Maguire's portrayal in this film is so quintessential Spider-Man in so many ways. Um, I, I I like his awkwardness at school. I like that, you know. Of course, they're all like you know twenty five year olds playing <laughs> teenagers. But, what do you mean? Um, <laughs> Which I noticed much more on this viewing than I did back then for some reason, but. Yeah, Flash's friend is, is not 18 years old. Eat me. <laughs> <laughs> Flash is not 18 years old. What are you talking about? <laughs> he's Deathstroke the Terminator, so he's not... A, um, oh, and Flash's friend is credited as Flash's crony. Like, that's his character name in this film, which I think is fantastic. If you were to know um, that, that Tiny is his friend from Untold Tales of Spider-Man, whatever. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, he does a Superman shirt rip at one point, changing to Spider-Man, mm-hmm. which I got the feeling like, like that's one of those things that Peter and Clark have in common is that like having to change out of the suit into the into the outfit in the alleyway um, is such a thing that they, Spider-Man probably would do shirt rips all the time. Mm-hmm. See, I thought all superheroes did that. I, I remember someone complaining. They used to. I remember somebody complaining that like Spider-Man ripped off Superman doing this in these movies. I was like, I thought every superhero did that. I remember, I remember uh, Virgil Hawkins in, in the Static Shock cartoon. Um, I didn't know that, that that Superman had a copyright on that. No, I just associated with him because you always get like the big S there, and of course Christopher Reeve movies did it all the time. But I mean, I mean back, I, I you know, know before these modern movies, people they all wore spandex, so they all just wore stuff under their costume. And they, one thing I realized about reading through Superman is that cultural perception and what actually happened are very different things. Yeah. Um, the spider sense in this, like they've tried to do that in different ways at different times. Here, it's just you get a Transformers sound effect, <laughs> and then he dodges the thing, and that's exactly oh, how the spider sense should work. I think it's even more than that. It's like at least the first one where Flash was going to punch him in the back of the head. He's like spatially aware of everything kind of around him like he could sense how far away the fly is and the spit wad that that one guy's shooting um it's a busy hallway (laughs) yeah but i i like it because that's maybe a complaint i have with the new spider-man is i'm not even sure if he has one or not he aren't they don't really even talk about it or anything and sometimes he he seems to be able he definitely has it in infinity war it was explicitly okay but i Um, mean like they 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 really play it up in this movie which is cool like even the end where that's how he defeats the green goblet is his spider sense kicks in and he can't get sneak attacked you know yeah i liked all that i I particularly like the the first instance of it with the slow motion and kind of panning around and then like it's suddenly being right at you know flash's fist as it's just about to hit him amazing spider-man amazing spider-man 365 uh which is the 30th anniversary issue really gave me my understanding of the spider sense because it can be consistent but like, I kind of see it as you know, everyone describes it as an early warning or an early danger system. But yeah, it's it's awareness of what's around him, and every, everything's kind of sort of being like involuntarily assessed as to like you know what the danger is. And like, the, if something's coming at him that's the most dangerous, dangerous, he's going to reflexively react. Like when Peter dodges it, he's not even choosing to dodge it. It's like he just reacts like that. And like when he's starting to notice how fast he is, that's like he's recognizing how fast he is, and that's kind of how. How it works. So yeah, I, I thought that was it was pretty spot on in this film. Um, the Daily Bugle, mm-hmm. we get uh, Betty Brant briefly. Eddie is mentioned in passing, which I thought was kind of a neat nod. Um, but we get Joe Robertson, and I don't think he has been in any other Spider-Man film. He's in the he's in uh, except for the Raimi films. Oh, the Raimi films. Yeah, he's he's not been in. The, well, Jameson's not been in the other films. <laughs> For God's sake. Oh, that's right. We, we never got a Jameson in Amazing, did we? No. I mean, he was referenced in the second one, but like they, they, they were too cowardly to cast him. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. You can't top this one. So why yeah, bother? J.K. Simmons is like one of the top three best realized comic characters come to life ever. Yeah, seriously. And he, I forget about him in this movie, you know, sometimes. But yeah, you got like, uh, you got Patrick Stewart as Charles Xavier and you got this guy. That's pretty much the best. Well, I mean, like, uh, I remember going into this film, and I, he was nowhere near the marketing, so I I just didn't expect him to be in the film. I thought they were trying to pass over him. And then, like, who is Spider-Man? He's a menace. I remember in the theater, like, oh, he James is in this, and like, he was pitch perfect. I mean, I mean, his scenes hold. I mean, there's it's not cheesy, it's not you know gated. His scenes make me laugh every single time, every single time. It's so it's like you don't trust anybody, do you? I trust my barber. <laughs> trust my barber. <laughs> 
That's the greatest line ever. With that, with that flat top, that ugly like wig. narrows as it goes up, <laughs> or, the, or the libel versus uh, slander or whatever. He's like, and that was actually like classic Jameson. I, I felt like that when like right off the page, yeah, yeah where like an important actual real distinction that is worth making, but he's only making it because it serves his best interest, right? His his, his self interest, yeah. And he even sounds offended, but then he flips it and it's like, no, it's I am not. It's this instead of that. Well, just, just, just like the lines so. that you're like, you know, you give him, you know, give him ten percent, no five percent, that can't be done. Get out of here! And, and it's like, uh, like you know, uh, you know, uh, meat. I give you Christmas meat, but you don't have a job. Like, like he, he's, he's, he's even smartass. He's, he's like, you get Julia Roberts in a thong. We get a picture of this clown. Like, it, I mean, like the personality was like, God damn, this is, this is like, so. I mean, this is effortless how they captured him. There's not a, there's not job? a spot missed. Job, no job. Freelance. Freelance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's great. I guess he only has like two scenes, sur- or I guess three scenes in this movie. But he does not sell out uh, um, uh, Peter. Peter, which I thought was also cool. I was going to mention the same thing. Is like he he has the chance to throw Peter under the bus, and he doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, James has never been that bad of a guy, as bad as he's been before. He's never like you know he certainly never sells out his his workers. He's not a coward. Well, he is a coward, but he's not Whoa. that much of a coward. <laughs> not that kind of coward. Yeah, yeah, that, that was really cool. I feel like, and Don, you can you can correct me if your impression is different. I feel like Jameson gets to this big, like, cartoon buffoon version of himself in the '60s that he comes out of and never really is quite that bad again. Well, th- I mean, there was there was moments where he was like, you know. Take pictures of me, you know, in, in the in the in the off in the trash office. My fists, you know, clenched and ready, which actually connects like the, the newspaper where it's like you know editor in chief Braves attack, which is actually like is, is all. I, I didn't catch that before. I think that yeah, he's he was much more of a cartoon character in the Dicko era, but there was still I mean that still had a three dimensional shade of him that was like he he generally tried to save Betty. Uh, I think when the Scorpion was attacking, although I know I know he didn't want the Scorpion to give that he hired him, but like. He was the most villainous in the Dick Herrera, but he did have moments of being a genuinely good guy. Um, and I think that like they did that here, where like, of course he wasn't as vile, but like he, but he's still like you know, the classic Stan Lee, uh, Jameson, where he is cartoonish, but like you know he's realized in a way which you rec- immediately recognize. I mean, he's such a character. He's one of the most, he's one of the most uh, um, fully developed personalities in comic books because he's he's a comic book character. Uh, through and through, and I think that like uh, that uh, it was it was just this kind of pushed the film into like into like classic status for me. When you have Jameson in Element in Spider-Man's World, who's definitely the most like eccentric character, and you do him like without fear, like like this this was this was just great. It was cool that they were able to start this movie with him in high school, and then he can also graduate and move on to have a job and live live you know hand hand to mouth uh, in the big city all in one movie. You know, so he still gets his, you know, school origins, but then we can move on from that. Yeah, I, I know that nowadays there is kind of an obsession with Peter always being in high school with, with stuff, with different incarnations. Uh, you know, the Ultimate ran for 15 years and um, the Homecoming movies have been comics uh, in high school. I feel like the origin of Spider-Man does require an element of him being dependent on his aunt and uncle. Mm-hmm. But then after that, there's not really anything about Spider-Man inherently that needs him to be in school. So this movie does both. It starts him out in school and then brings him out of it. Yeah. Um, 
And I like that. Now, the rest of the films can have him just living his life and being Spider-Man with Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man 3 and the other Spider-Mans that ended up not getting made. But we're going to be, there was going to be a Spider-Man 4. It just oh, yeah. got undone. I covered that, yeah. But, oh, yeah. And, and this is like one of the most major discussions in Spider-Man fandom. Just like, like as people have, I saw somebody on Twitter genuinely say, you know, you know, you have to like Spider-Man Homecoming because it was literally the intention of Stan Lee to make a character who was all about wanting to be like the Avengers. And I was like, everything you say is wrong because it's, it's like, I, I agree with you that like Spider-Man is initially a young character, but like, <laughs> this is such an old argument for so many reasons, but like he, the, the thing that he is, is it's like, it's, it's, it's the story of a normal person with an extraordinary life and how that the needs of himself and the needs of society can't, can't match. And that doesn't work itself out when he comes of age. That, that continues to kind of curse him throughout his life. And, you know, Stanley and Steve Dicko didn't have him stay young. And uh, I think that, like, uh, the Spectacular Spider-Man cartoon had it right where he was in high school, but, like, he was mature. Because Peter Parker was always a mature young adult. Um, and even in the Amazing films, I mean, he was in high school by the end of the film, but by the beginning of the next film, he was graduating. So it was like, you know, yeah, Spider-Man is supposed to be a young character, but he's not supposed to be... Def- He's not defined by his youth, and it's again like this is this is such an age-old argument, it's such a bad argument, but he is really a character who kind of grapples with balancing responsibility more than somebody who's like, "Wow, cool!" Like everything that happens to him, like like, like and I think that like uh, personally, um, it's not my it's not my take of like the Ultimate Cartoon and stuff like that because they tend to kind of shortchange deeper deeper storytelling avenues for the character when they just kind of focus on him being you know the Rick Jones of the Marvel universe, essentially. Well, and you know, you were mentioning him really want to be one of the Avengers and can't because he's young. And I feel like the wanting to be an Avenger when, when that comes up, which it doesn't often up until the modern era, that's more like wanting to be one of the cool kids and wanting to fit in with a group. Cause he has that loner aspect to him. Cause he, he doesn't fit in socially. And then when it doesn't work out, he goes back to being, you know, a loner, but it's not from being a child wanting to play with the adults. It's from being an outcast one to fit in with a group. And I think that that latter is a very important aspect of Spider-Man is that he, you know, goes through life having trouble fitting in in the ways that he wants to. Um, and you can do that with a young person, but you don't have to do it with a young person. You can do that with full grown people because um, I don't know. I can certainly attest as an almost 40 year old man to the whole notion of not fitting in and want to be part of a group and not knowing how to do that. I also think that like, um, Spider-Man by nature, uh, because apparently, I mean, and I I didn't read this, but apparently he, he just left the Avengers for once. And I think that like by nature, he's a character who excels on his own and kind of prefers to be alone. I mean, yeah, he, he had aspirations of joining the Fantastic Four and the Avengers, but those didn't work out. And he, he didn't pursue them again. Um, and I was actually thinking about this today, is that like, because my favorite Spider-Man run is the JMS run, specifically with John Romero Jr. And he, I wouldn't say he had a chip on his shoulder during that run, but JMS's voice for Peter Parker was really like, you know, at a certain point, you know, um, these people kind of got to recognize that like, I, I, he had no time for anybody's shit. And that to me, harkened back to like the Ditko era, where he, he really didn't care to like make a lot of friends. He, he kind of ignored Gwen, uh, whether he meant to or not, you know. He wanted to have friends, but at times, you know, he, he, he had a, he had a, there were times where he just kind of had enough with, like, society, kind of just want to be left alone. And I'm not saying that, like, you know, Spider-Man should be a sort of, like, you know, uh, an introverted, insular character, 
but I think that like when you confuse his youth for uh, a yearning to be uh, complacent and common, then I think you're kind of getting some, some wires crossed because a lot of times he, he kind of achieves what he sets out to do, but like there's always something that kind of makes him realize that he doesn't fit in to a lot of other people's uh, kind of like you know communities. I don't know how this relates to the movie, but like we gotta get on this topic. <laughs> well, just in that. You know, it started in high school and now he's not. Whereas I believe in Homecoming, there was a lot of complaints that he was in high school again and they didn't want him there. But uh, I can't, I think you get the best of both worlds in this one. Both yeah. both sides can complain or both sides can be happy. And it works well with the story they're telling in, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, that's that's a different interpretation of Spider-Man that I think works. Um, it's not as classic and representative of the comics as a whole, but it works with some aspects of it. Um, but we're coming up on an hour and a half, um, which is fine, but um, definitely want to think about if there are any other burning ideas or thoughts you have in your head that you want to get off of your chest. I've gone through pretty much all of my talking points. The only thing that I haven't mentioned yet that I think might be worth mentioning is um, that Dr. Connors is name dropped in this. Um he comes home from seeing Mary Jane in the street and tells Harry um, that he's lost his job. And so Harry's like, oh, no, how'd you you know lose your internship with Dr. Connors or whatever it was? And Lily, my daughter, interpreted Peter as like lying, as like not actually having that job because we didn't see any evidence of him having that job. But I think it was more just a matter of a lot of time is passing through the course of this film and, and we kind of get little details here and there told to us rather than shown to us. But um but that's about all I have for the film. Any other any other thoughts that y'all have? I actually thought about that. I was, I was I, it occurred to me this viewing if, if if he made that up. Um my favorite scene like when I, when, I, when I was 13 I was watching this my favorite scene was like the final fight. That if if if, if nothing else like Spider-Man before that felt like the character where he's just up against the wall getting his ass kicked and he has, has to kind of just wrestle out of it. Um, that really feel like the, like the like the dark lighting, the violence, um, the struggle. That to me is Spider Man, and I thought that that was I, like that kind of that kind of closes. Okay, no, that's it. This this is it. You know, this is this is this is all there is to it. Like, uh, um, I just I just remember that that feeling. Also, my mom did not doesn't know about Spider Man, so like, uh, she was surprised twice in this film. One when it was revealed that like Peter let the burglar go, and the burglar killed Uncle Ben when the light hit his eyes. She like audibly gasped in the theater. <laughs> Uh, and two, like when the goblin was, when Osborne was talking to Peter at the end and he said the, the glider start to kind of raise from the ground, I was just say, okay, mom, don't scream. <laughs> like, like, cause I knew exactly what was going to happen at that moment in time. And I, I just, I just have, I still have those memories when I first saw it. Peter, don't tell Harry. I like that. Oh, also, uh, he got yeah. hit in the crotch. <laughs> oh, well that's cause he had to bend over. So I think that's what they, it is a weird, a weird spot to be hit though. But like in the comments, it's the, it's the chest, it's the sternum. He straight up got, got impaled in the balls. <laughs> poor, poor <laughs> Willem Dafoe. Uh, well, I mean, to be fair, if he was going to die, they weren't going to be useful anymore anyway. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah I, whoa. <laughs> but like, I had to rewind it. I was like, am I, like, you know, looking for things that aren't there? No, I'm not. Like, that's not the, that's really mean, Sam Raimi. What did Norman Osborn ever do to you? Oh, man, that was awesome. Okay, well, and, um, Mike, did you have anything else that you wanted, sir? Um, well, I, I know that uh, music leaves no um, imprint on John's life. I just like to poke him about that. I know that's not true, but it, it's totally <laughs> true. But anyway, um, 
Danny Elfman's score. Any thoughts on that? Anybody? Like, I remember that was kind of a disappointment for some people because, you know, this is back when, like, Superman had a very distinct score and then Danny Elfman came along and made a very distinct Batman, you know, march or theme or whatever. And then with Spider-Man, he kind of didn't. But I still think the music's pretty good. But there's some cues. But there's no, like, I mean, there's theme some things theme, you can hum. You know? Well, no, there's, there's, a, yeah. there's a Spider-Man theme, like, like when those credits start up and yeah. at the very end, like, if they kind of, like, you know, there's, there's kind of, like, like, sort of a sprinting theme. It's like, dun 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 It kind of evokes, you know, <laughs> okay, running so to that, by the way, that reminds me that this is also the first movie where they do the flip panel-y Marvel intro, which I thought was awesome. Oh, is this the very awesome. first time they did that? Not X-Men? I believe it is. Yeah, I saw it, and I was like, were they even doing this back then, or have they, like, put this on there? No, they were. Because I remember thinking this is the greatest movie of all time when I saw that opener. That was awesome. And it goes really, it goes cool. really good with that music. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Just overall thoughts. If we're trying to wrap it up, like like I said before, it's a great, you know, beginning to end Spider-Man solid origin independent story. I think Willem Dafoe is fantastic. I think Tobey Maguire is fantastic. Um, supporting cast in general is good. I think there are a few elements carried over from. You know, some cheesier times maybe, or and some of the some of the CGI is a little outdated, but nothing that really bothered me even viewing today. There's also a lot of parts still that, you know, made the hair on hair on my forearm stand up straight. So like it's still it still has the emotion there. Um and maybe that's just a carryover from memory or something, but I don't know. It worked for me. It always it's a good movie. I think it's a really good movie. This to me is um Don't go ahead. No, I mean I upon this rewatch and again with perspective and all that kind of stuff. I remember on the comic film review, uh, which is a show I did with uh, Bertone in the Crazy Chris from Spider-Man Crawl Space, where we talked about like comic films, and you talked about Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, which I think is like our longest episode ever because we're all Spider-Man stands. Um, I remember comparing the actors, and um, I still think that Tobey Maguire uh, might come in third compared to Tom Holland and Andrew Garfield because, and I think it's honestly just, it just comes down to his voice, which is a little unfair. Uh, that like Spider-Man at certain at a certain point is a little, a little tougher than I think people kind of remembered Spider-Man being from Toby's portrayals, but in this film, it's pre- it's pretty much spot on as written, and uh, I think that like uh, he does a really good job. And, I, and this film, I mean, I was reminded of, like Batman Begins in terms of, like you know I just had a smile on my face the entire time in terms of like seeing so much of how I understood the character portrayed almost one to one on on screen for everyone to see. It's that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I, 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 I actually kind of like, uh, some of the later costumes better than this costume. You know, I, I think the effects are a little dated, but who cares? Like, like, like it, it doesn't overwrite the emotion that I got watching this film. And like, you know, I mean, this film really jumped up in my, my estimation. This to me is, is actually one of my favorite films. And I think that, uh, uh, I'll hear no speak against it. You know, eh, the costume is, <laughs> it's like, whatever, like, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think, honestly, I decided to tweet this. This is better than the overwhelming majority of, of the MCU films. Um, I mean, I love me some Captain America. Um, I, I actually like Avengers Age of Ultron quite a lot, but like, I would say most of the 18 films I come up with, this is better than most of those still. Because the style and directing and vision for the character is so much more complete in, its, in what it's achieved that uh, I think this stands the test of time. All right. Well, yeah, this is... Um I was not expecting to enjoy this as much as I did going into it for this for this podcast because uh, when Andrew Garfield Spider-Man came along, I glommed onto that with a lot of passion and a lot of love. Um, 
I do enjoy Tom Holland's Spider-Man a lot, but the fact that the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man story was never finished is always going to be one of those, like, you know, bittersweet things that can never be kind of feelings in my mind. So um, when I look back at the Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films in my mind, I'm just like, oh, that was, you know, what came before my Spider-Man films. And then I watch this and it's just, it is so Spider-Man. It is so enjoyable. It is such a solid film. And, uh, you know, we are perfectly willing to recognize that there's stuff that might feel a little cringy. There's stuff that might feel a little dated. Um, But at the end of the day, the emotion of the film is there. The story is there. The, the arcs and the journeys the characters go on are there. And the performances for the vast majority of, of, of the scenes are really, really on point. Um, this is, I think, more than any other Spider-Man film, this is quintessential Spider-Man. And, mm-hmm. and that makes it, I mean, one of the most important installments of the character's history so yeah really happy to have you on to talk about it don um you and me talking spider-man was like a huge thing <laughs> when we were much younger and so whenever we were going to be talking about the spider-man movie, i was like i want to go talk to don i haven't talked to don about spider-man in a long time uh-huh. so you're um you're a, a a fan whose opinions i always love to hear because you're always thoughtful about your approach to your your, your entertainment, and, and I really, really respect your voice out there in the fandom interwebs. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And it was fun talking about Spider-Man with you, too, because those were truly the best of times. Um, I appreciate you bringing me on, and I appreciate uh, talking to you and Kaiser, who have not talked to in a dog's age. Um, and thank you for giving me the chance to watch this film again, because I was almost like, eh, I've seen it enough times, but no, I, I, I appreciate this viewing, because I think this viewing has the most been, it's been the most revelatory viewing of this film so far in my life so so don will be back for spider-man 2 and 3 and amazing spider-man 1 and 2 and spider-man homecoming and the next spider-man after that <laughs> right spider-man far from home if i live that long yeah. far from home. <laughs> sounds good well yeah, well yeah well and we made far from home when it comes out will definitely be something to talk about but i think is that a, is that a 2020 film or is that a 19 uh, film? yeah i don't know uh, I, I saw something yesterday that, that like, the, the pre-production has definitely begun. I think Holland tweeted something, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, like Spider-Man's dead, so like I don't know what the, I don't know why there's something. Be- oh, there's a Spider-Man movie coming out. The uh, the Shattered Universe. Oh, the Miles movie. And yeah, that's oh, coming out yeah. like, later this. That's year. true. Yeah, totally. So um, okay, well, remind everyone where you can be heard talking about all sorts of stuff on the internet. Well, again, thank you very much for bringing me on the show. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the, my main gig is questions we don't have answers at QNOAnswers.com, where I uh, co-host with Harrison Chute. Uh, our most recent episode, and one which we actually want to do a follow-up, talk to, you know, kind of address the James Gunn thing, and we kind of got into more talk about the Me Too movement and issues, and we actually kind of had a, had a pretty um, hard disagreement, which is kind of rare for us on the show, but I thought it would be an interesting discussion, even if I might regret things I say on there now, and it might be outdated by the time you're hearing this podcast. Um, and before that, we, we met up in Comic-Con and uh, did a comedy tour on, on Commando, because of course we did. Uh, I also do the Gotham Chronicle, as as mentioned earlier, with Bertoni and Jan at the Gotham at the BatmanUniverse.net. Um, I also contribute uh, editorials and uh, reviews. Actually, I had to need to do a write-up on Comic-Con there. Uh, so I have a lot of content you can find if you kind of find my name on that website. Um, 
I do the comic film review, which I also co-host with Josh Bertoni and Crazy Chris uh, at CBF Review, review spelled R-E-V-U-E dot com. We review uh, comic book films. Sometimes they're new. Sometimes they're classic. Uh, we, re- we review... The last few we've, we've done have been Infinity War, Black Panther, uh, Atomic Blonde, uh, Professor Mars and the Wonder Woman, Scott Pilgrim, The Phantom. Those are the last ones we did in the last year or so. Um, and aside from that, I think that might be it. Um, I've been pretty active in the last decade online. I think this is kind of, you know, the era where I'm doing all these things. But again, thank you very much for having me on. It was a lot of fun. I just saw that Professor Marston film for the first time recently. Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and one thing that we haven't mentioned, um, that I'll just throw out there because it's free. Um, I, with my uh, son, have been watching through the original Dragon Ball, and we just finished, and we're watching, and this is both of our very, very first yeah. time to watch through Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> and um, Donovan has a complete journey, podcast journey through Dragon Ball Z out there for your listening pleasure. Uh, the Next Dimension yes, is uh, the name of the podcast, and that's at dbznextdimension.libson.com. Yes, thank you. I actually forgot about that because I'm not done in a year. Um, yeah, uh, Jesse Garrett and I, from the end of 2011 to the end of 2015, four years straight, did a consistent, nonstop, monthly look at the Dragon Ball Z series. Not Dragon Ball, not Dragon Ball GT. Dragon Ball Z. We covered the, the entire story. Um, looking at the, the, the manga, the, the original anime, the um, Dragon Ball Kai, all the movies. We even had some video game talk near the end and some discussions. And if you're a fan of that anime, um, whether you're a fan of the original version or, or the uh, Funimation dub version, we tried, to cover, we, we tried to cover all the bases, and I'm pretty proud of that show. We had a, we had a sizable uh, listenership, and um, we have since endeavored to do Super, and then Jesse got married and had a family. So... Um, we're kind of struggling to get to, to kind of finish that because it's finished in Japan recently, but um, uh, DBZ has been completely covered, and uh, you might hear some more content from come from that sooner rather than later. So uh, thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah, because you and I might be doing something on there, and uh, if 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 that is able to to happen, then we'll definitely be sharing that on the uh, Facebook and Twitter for this show. Um, but yeah, so I'll be listening to that soon, and. Um, all right. Well, Mike, I guess we have successfully completed another not comics special. Yep. What's next? And, um, I don't know. I don't this know is either. what month? This is August. Yeah. No, nothing's coming still, so we're gonna have to do another oldie. We're gonna have to figure something out. So we will figure something out for September. It's going to happen. I kind of want to go old. Okay. Captain America serial. Here we come. Captain America serial, or maybe the first Hulk TV film. Ooh, that'd be fun. Okay. Yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, in honor of his return someday. Someday. Well, you know. Oh, yeah, because he's, he's coming, coming back. He's coming back to our comics yeah. soon. Maybe, uh, maybe Dave Weeder or Michael Bailey is out there. They're big Hulk fans. Yeah. Okay, so we'll figure something out for next month. Don't worry, it's going to happen. And, um, until then, thank you very much for listening. We are, uh, we are signing off for the. Oh, yeah. There's another episode next to this one on your feed. Because, of course, we do the regular weekly episodes at the same time as these non-comic specials. So don't forget to download and go listen to episode, um, what is it, 18, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's there. All right. Well, I guess um, that's how to say goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight, Gracie. <laughs> Bye. Say goodnight, sweetheart.
coming September 1st. Image Comics formed in 1992 by several creators unhappy with their current place in the industry. So they band together to make a new comics company for a new generation of readers. Creator-owned mutants, cops, black ops government agents, demon-possessed, and they are going to be the greatest comics ever. In April of 1992, the first issues hit the stands, and fandom resounded with cries of... Pouches? Why are there so many pouches? What? You don't like pouches? All the Pouches, an Image Comics podcast, is one fan's exploration of those early years of Image Comics. Youngblood, The Savage Dragon, Spawn, and more, with maybe even a few pouches along the way. So come give a listen at johnreadscomics.com. That's John with no H. Just you can spell it right.